The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. Today's passage comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And you can find it on page 922 in the Black Pew Bible if you're following along. Please stand as I read God's word. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're blessed this morning to have Brother Chance Newingham come and share the word with us. Chance, uh, many of you all know him, he's one of our members, one of our leaders here, one of our community group leaders. He's also going through our residency program here as well. I'm thankful for you, brother. And uh, as soon as I introduce you, I'm going to leave, but that's because I'm serving downstairs, all right? And so no offense. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to listen to it sometime this week. No, I'm thankful for this, brother. I'm going to pray for you, okay? Lord, I thank you for my brother Chance. Thank you for the many, many ways that you have gifted him. Thank you for saving him. Thank you for putting a desire in his heart to preach your word, a desire in his heart to reach the people of Athens and in his community. God, his family... They are such a blessing to our Delta family here, and I thank you and praise you for them. We thank you for your word, and I pray that you would empower my brother now as he prepares to preach and teach your word, give him clear thoughts, clear words. Lord, I pray that you would help him worship you even while he preaches. Holy Spirit, may you lift high the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ during this time. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. Uh, first thing I want to do is say thank you to Charles. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I was slated to, to preach, and um, last minute he filled in for me. I got malaria. Uh, I was in Sierra Leone at the orphanage about a month ago and, and came back doing great, feeling awesome, and then I came down with malaria. So zero stars. Uh, do not recommend 
um, getting, getting malaria. Uh, I did lose 12 pounds though, so that was pretty exciting. And um, I did the math, and so last summer I had um, COVID and I lost like 15 pounds. And so 15 and 12, if I could get them at the same time, that would put me back at my high school weight. So kind of thinking about that. Uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, no, for real, Charles, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate you filling in. I'm thankful to uh, look at God's Word with everyone this morning. First thing I want to do, I want to travel back in time a little bit. So around 32 years ago, there was a song on the top 10 country music singles chart. Now, I know Delta is not necessarily composed of country music fans, so I am thankful for this opportunity to impose this upon you. In this song, the singer was recounting a life lesson that was taught to him by his father. And the life lesson was this. You need to stand up for your moral convictions. I want to read the lyrics to you. I'm going to read them. I'm not going to sing them. Charles wanted me to sing them. I'm not going to sing them. I'm going to read them. Okay, I'm going to read these to you. I want to see if you can remember this song, maybe the name of the song, and then extra bonus points if you can remember who sings the song. So here it is. Now, Daddy didn't like trouble. But if it came along, everyone that knew him knew which side he'd be on. He never was a hero or this county's shining light, but you could always find him standing up for what he thought was right. He'd say, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. You've got to be your own man, not a puppet on a string. Never compromise what's right and uphold your family name. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. That ring a bell for anybody? Yep. Name of the song is You've Got to Stand for Something, and the artist is Aaron Tippin. Now, I share this song for two reasons. Okay, number one, I get to raise my, my country flag and fly it and uh, not get booed because of it. Second thing is this. Believe it or not, this song shares some commonality with the passage that we had read for us just a couple minutes ago. As you're going to see, Paul drew a line in the sand when it came to a specific theological issue. And he said that anyone who crosses that line is in serious danger. So I want to pray, and then we'll jump into the text together. God, we're thankful for this opportunity to look at your word. As my friend said this morning right before services, it doesn't matter what kind of week we've had, good or bad, we desperately need to hear your word. It gives us life. And so, God, we quiet our minds, we quiet our hearts right now so that we might listen to your divinely inspired word so that our souls might be nourished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we had the text read, read for us already. I want to kind of set the stage a little bit and explain some of the context of this chapter. So in Paul's day, there was a group of individuals running around called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers said this. They said, in order to be saved, you have to have Jesus, which we would agree with, right? But they also said, you must obey the Old Testament law. They said, you must have Jesus, but the whole Old Testament, you got to do that as well. Well, of course, Paul was opposed to this teaching because the gospel plus anything else spoils the gospel, right? The true gospel is faith in Jesus plus nothing else. And the Judaizers, they had been traveling to different churches in the area, and they were getting close to the church at Philippi. And so Paul wrote this letter to warn them 
so that they might know what was coming and how they might protect themselves against it. As you're going to see, Paul was working to protect doctrine. And so here's the main idea that I want you to be on the lookout for as we work through these 11 verses, okay? This is my, my, my thesis, all right? The true gospel is faith in Jesus alone for salvation plus nothing else. I think that's the main thrust of these 11 verses. So let's work our way back through the text verse by verse. Look at verse 1. The text reads, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul opens this chapter by telling the people to rejoice. And he doesn't just say rejoice, he says rejoice in the Lord. You know, you can rejoice for the sake of rejoicing, which is kind of like most self-help books that are out there right now. They say, be happy because life is better when you're happy. If you have a positive attitude, then positivity is going to come your way. That's not what Paul is getting at here. He is saying rejoice, and you rejoice because of the Lord. Rejoice in Him. I imagine he probably had a couple Old Testament passages in mind. Psalm 32, verse 11 reads this way. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. The text doesn't say just be glad because life goes better when you're glad. No, it says be glad and rejoice in the Lord. Or the very next chapter, Psalm 33, verse 1 says, shout for joy in the Lord. It doesn't say shout for the sake of shouting. The Newingham boys do that. My sons do that, right? No, this says shout for the Lord. Shout for joy in his name, O you righteous. What's Paul's point here? I think he wanted the believers at the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. He wanted them to praise God for what he had done in their past. They were to pause and look back and look at God's faithfulness. And that faithfulness from the past was to give them strength and endurance for what they were about to face from the Judaizers. It's like Paul saying, guys, don't just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. For he has been so good and so faithful. And so after that little opening encouragement there, Paul said these words, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So when I first read that, I'm like, I don't really understand what what he's getting at there. It's no trouble for me, it's safe for you, what's going on? Well, this is why I'm an advocate of having a few different Bible versions around the house and I can pick up another one and and see how it's worded a little, little differently. I really like the way the NLT says it. It says this, I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Isn't that tender? This letter from Paul to the church in Philippi, which we believe was probably one of the first churches that Paul ever started, this was a warm letter of encouragement. And I think we see that warmness here, that tenderness, right? He says, I never get tired of telling you these things. And I'm doing it because I care for you. I want to safeguard your faith. Friends, this is no trouble for me. I love you. I want what's best for you. So for me to write you a little letter, I'd love to do that. So we have to ask the question then, okay, what was best for them? What specific advice did he want them to hear? Well, that advice begins in verse 2. It reads, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You don't find the word Judaizer in verse 2, but this is where the Judaizers come into play. These are the people who were adding to the gospel, right? They said, yes, you must have faith in Jesus, but you also need to obey 
the Old Testament law. And because they were adding to the gospel, the most precious thing on earth, here, Paul, in this verse, unleashes a flurry of insults. You know, we read this and we're like, oh yeah, that's kind of strong, powerful language. These were like slap you in the face phrases for Paul's day. The Judaizers, what, what, what do these names mean, okay? The, the, the Judaizers, commentators debate, but the Judaizers were, were probably having this said about them. They were like dogs and that dogs go where they're not supposed to go. Anybody, who here ha- anybody here has dogs? Dogs go in the kitchen, get in the trash, they go out in the road and run, cars are driving by. Dogs go where they're not supposed to go. Judaizers go where they're not welcome where they're not supposed to go. Second idea, the Judaizers were criminals because they were evil and they worked towards evil causes. And number three, the Judaizers were mutilators because their confidence rested in circumcision. That's what this verse is about. Their confidence rested in circumcision. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this is never what you want the preacher to say. We gotta camp out at circumcision for a little bit, okay? If we want to get this text, we've got to understand what it was, what it was about, why it was practice. So think back to Genesis 17. God made a covenant with Abraham telling him, God said this, I will give you numerous descendants. All people will be blessed. And there is to be a sign of this covenant. The Lord told Abraham, all males after you are to have something done to them physically to show that they are part of the covenant. And what was that act? It was circumcision. You know, I, I imagine, I wonder if Abraham, you know, he's like listening to the Lord and he's like, this, this is gonna be great. Like God's making a promise, a covenant with me and, and I'm gonna have numerous descendants. that's gonna be awesome. And then God tells him what it is. And he's like, no, Lord, listen, I know that you are like sovereign and, and perfect and all your ways are good maybe a secret handshake? Like, could we, do, could we do something like that, right? Well, in Genesis 17, God told Abraham that any person who did not accept this sign of the covenant was to be rejected from the people of God. God was dead serious about this covenant and the terms of this covenant. Well, it's in that text right there, Genesis 17, that the Judaizers believe they are right. This is their proof text, right? They open up the scroll. They say, this is why we do what we do. This is why we emphasize circumcision because God right here says this is part of the covenant. And they thought it was still to be observed. Their logic seems sound, right? Like they're holding up scripture as they say this. But they missed a major truth. The gospel of Jesus made the literal observance of circumcision no longer necessary. Jesus came to circumcise the heart. Jesus brought with him a new and better covenant. And we get a glimpse of this in verses three and four. Paul begins to like compare and contrast true believers with the Judaizers. Look at verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision. He, he, he's talking about new covenant Christians. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Then verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what what Paul's doing here, he's holding up like 
to me, what comes to mind is like a, a counterfeit dollar bill, okay? He holds up a counterfeit dollar bill and a real dollar bill. And what he's doing right here is explaining the real dollar bill, like what makes the real dollar bill real? What makes it have value? Well, when you look at that and then you look at the counterfeit, it's easy to spot why the counterfeit is a counterfeit. Well, that's what he's doing here with true believers and the Judaizers. He's saying us, true believers, we have the Spirit of God. You, the Judaizers, you don't have the Holy Spirit. We, the people of God, know that physical circumcision is no longer necessary. You, the Judaizers, still practice this. We, the people of God, are solely relying on Christ. You, the Judaizers, are trying to do it yourselves. We are not focusing on human effort. Y'all are. Now, I, I, th I think this is the appropriate time to, to pause and offer a clarification. So, if you're familiar with that covenant in Genesis 17 and, and you're hearing me speak now, you, you may be sitting there thinking this. You may be thinking, okay, Chance, I see what you're saying, but hear me out. These Judaizers, these false teachers, weren't they just following Scripture? You might be sitting there thinking, Chance, I can take you to my Bible in the Old Testament, Genesis 17, where the text says that this covenant was to be an everlasting covenant. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, Chance, weren't these Judaizers simply doing what God told them to do? Now, if this is you, what I would say is this is really good. It's very good that you are thinking critically about this. But I have to tell you that the Judaizers missed two huge things. The first one is this. They were placing too much emphasis on a physical mark. They believed that their salvation was secure so long as they were circumcised. They believed that they could go and live however they wanted simply because of that physical mark. They were forgetting that in the Old Testament, physical marks, physical rites, ceremonies, they were always symbolic of something deeper. It was never just about the surface level. But they should have known this, right? They knew passages like Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, which reads, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. They also knew passages like Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, which reads, quote, And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. See, this is the first big thing that the Judaizers missed. They missed the symbolism of circumcision. It was to be an identifying mark of a heart condition. And they missed that. Second idea, and this one's even bigger than the first one is, they missed Jesus. Jesus had come to bring an entirely new covenant. And in this new covenant, what mattered was God working on your heart, God opening your eyes, and you living a life of obedience. 1 Corinthians 7.19 reads this way, for it makes no difference. This is mind-blowing to the Judaizer, okay? It says this, for it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. You see, even though these Judaizers just missed two things, they were two things of utmost importance. And beginning in verse 3, which we just read, Paul described what he and the other true believers had that they did not have. 
Look back at verse 3. He said, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, hey, me and the other believers at the church in Philippi, we are worshiping in and through and by the Holy Spirit. We were once outsiders. We were Gentiles. But because salvation is available to all, not just those who have been circumcised, we've been saved. We've been given the Holy Spirit. You can have that too, Judaizers. You just have to let go of You have to do the entire Old Testament law, especially circumcision. Paul also said in this verse that, quote, he glories in Christ Jesus. Now, the word glory here, it it, it can mean to boast. That's not to say that like Paul and the believers at Philippi were like bragging about their salvation and like teasing others that they had salvation and they didn't. No, this is a confidence in salvation. Like, yes, we are saved. I am sure that Christ's work will save me. And that leads directly into the very next phrase here. The text says, we put no confidence in the flesh. So if the gospel to Paul and the Philippians were believing, relied on Jesus, why would they have any reason to put confidence in their own flesh? Why would they be concerned with their own abilities? What confidence would they have in their own power to do good and right things? None. You see, the word flesh here doesn't mean like skin type thing. It means like human weakness, human frailty, or our tendency to sin. So you think about that. Why would I ever put confidence in my own human weakness, my own human frailty, or my tendency to sin? It doesn't make any sense. But do you know who was putting confidence in their flesh? Do you know who was putting confidence in their own ability to follow the law? The Judaizers. Here's my favorite part of the the passage. And so from here for the next several verses, Paul switches gears and he's like, you know what? I'm going to play your game, Judaizers. I'm going to play your game. I'm going to pretend. I've told you that because of Jesus, you do not have to observe the law, but but, but let's say that you're right. Let's say that observing the law, all that Old Testament, let's say that that is what saves you. You think you're saved, Judaizers? Let me show you my resume. And that's what's going to happen in the next few verses. Look at the end of verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's like, you want to talk about following the law through the power of the flesh, Judaizers? I got you beat. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6. He he recounts his religious background and his upbringing. Look at verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It's like Paul's listing his fleshly resume here, right? The the Judaizers were pushing circumcision and a whole lot more than that. They're all about observing the law. And Paul's like, you know what? I've got you beat because I've followed it to the nth 
degree. So let's break down each one of these phrases here. First one, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That means exactly what you would think it means. That's what God commanded in the Old Testament. Paul says, that was me, circumcised on the eighth day. Next one, I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. This was Paul's way of saying like, listen guys, I have identity with the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe that gave them their first king. Are you Judaizers from that tribe? The next phrase, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. This was probably Paul's way of saying like, listen, I speak all kinds of languages, but I speak Aramaic, which is the language of God's people. Do you Judaizers even speak Aramaic? No, you don't. The next one, Paul was, when it came to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul was so devoted to the law, you remember early in the book of Acts, he was so devoted to the law that he would hunt down people who didn't adhere to the law like he did and then have them killed. He's like, you think you're devoted to the law? Let me tell you about who I was not that long ago. And finally, the last part of it, it says, Paul was, when it came to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's pretty bold, right? Paul's like, if I had to think of one word to define my adherence to the law, blameless. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's, He's playing their game, right? He's pretending for the sake of argument. The Judaizers were trying to tell him and others, all of these Checkmark boxes, that's what saves you. And Paul's like, well, if that's what saves you, I got more boxes checked than you. But guess what? That's not what saves you. That's not what gets you salvation. What matters is Jesus. What matters is what he has done. And that's exactly where Paul goes in the next two verses. Look at verse seven. But whatever gain I had from all that stuff I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's like, all that stuff that I just told you about, my circumcision, my religious upbringing, my familial religious heritage, my strict observance of the law, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, all of that, those were futile human efforts to save myself. And when I compare those things to Jesus, all of those check marks, when I compare that to Jesus, that stuff's useless. It's utterly useless. Because knowing Jesus, that's what matters. The word knowing here in the verse, it might mean more than we would initially think. It means like knowing Jesus in a, in a relational way, in like a, a prayerful way, in a daily walk kind of way. But, but this word knowing here is actually tied to obedience as well. It's not just a cognitive knowing, like I know this to be true, yet it doesn't affect my behavior. No, it is a I know this to be true, so I'm going to follow. I'm going to do what God's word says. I'm going to recognize the lordship of Jesus and follow his commands. Paul continues in the next three verses here, and he's going to continue to talk about Jesus all the way through verse 11. I'm going to warn you, though, it's it's, it's a little complicated, a little confusing it can be, but I think we can wade through it together, and and we'll be able to take it piece by piece. So look look at the end of verse 8. 
for his sake, he's talking about Jesus, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, again, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, Paul looks back on his old religious life and he says it's not worth much when you compare it to knowing Jesus. And, and, and not just knowing Jesus, not just gaining Jesus, but the text makes it a point to say being found in Jesus. You see, when we're found in Christ, we don't have to hold up our religious deeds, all of the good things that we've done. We don't have to, to hold them up and compare them to the law and say, Lord, how'd I, how, how'd I do? I, I, I tried to live a good life. Did I measure up? Did I stack up? If we were to do that, we're doomed. But the text says that if we have faith in Christ, if we have grasped him as our own, we are then found in him that his righteousness is our righteousness. He obeyed the law completely, something that we could not do. So if we are found in him, when God looks at us, we're in Jesus, and he doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees Jesus' perfection. And when he looks at us, he acquits us of our crimes based on Jesus' substitution. And if we accept that gift and treasure that gift, that means that one day we will be raised to be with God the Father who set the plan in motion to save us. We will be with the Son who died in our place, and we will be with the Spirit who guided us along the way. There is a needed reminder here at the end of this section, though. Did, did you see where Paul described the difficulty that, that comes with this glorious inheritance? This road to resurrection and glorification will be a road marked with suffering. That's what Jesus says. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us, right? When we are trying to live a faithful life to God in this dark world, we will face opposition. You know, Paul knew that the Judaizers were coming. They had already been to another church in the area, and it was only a matter of time before they made their way to the church in Philippi. And I think Paul used this opportunity to draw a line in the sand when it came to this issue of the gospel. You know, earlier I mentioned my main idea was this. The true gospel is faith in Jesus alone for salvation plus nothing else. I think, though, that we can break this down a little further, make it just a little bit more practical by giving just a few sub-points. First one is this. Be on guard for false gospels and false teachings. Preserving God's word, that is worth fighting for. Preserving the gospel, that's worth fighting for. But here's the deal. To fight against false gospels, to fight against false teachers, you have to know the true gospel. 
And going back to our illustration with the dollar bills, how do you spot a fake? You are intimately familiar with which that is real. And so for us to spot fakes and false gospels, we must be intimately familiar with God's word. We are to be people of God who spend time in God's word every day. We are to be people of God who study God's word and think about how it might apply to our lives. We are to be people of God who are involved in community groups and Bible studies. We are to be people of God who read trustworthy books about the Bible so that we might grow in our knowledge of Scripture. God's word is to be our anchor because false teachers are coming. False teachers have come. False gospels have come, and false gospels will continue to come. So we must be ready and trained to spot them and defeat them. You know, to think about this from like a church-wide perspective, today, our church, churches in general, must draw lines and set boundaries when it comes to a multitude of issues. Things like racism, marriage, sexual purity, what it means to be made in the image of God, LGBTQ plus issues, integrity, these are just a few. I'm telling you, I'm I'm saying to our church and all churches, we must draw lines, set boundaries, dig in, and prepare for battle. Second idea is this, make sure that you and your church, our church, is not adding to the gospel. The Judaizers, right, they added to the gospel, they had Jesus, they had it but then they added to it. Here's the deal, okay? When we are honest with ourselves, we must admit that we have the same tendency to add to the gospel. And to show you that, I have a little exercise that I want to do. I'm going to say a sentence but not finish the sentence in my notes here, you know, the sentence is blank. I want you to fill in this sentence with whatever comes to mind for you. Please, for the love of everything holy, don't say anything out loud. (laughs) It will not go well for you. But I want you in your mind's eye to just fill this in, okay? And again, this is an exercise to show that all of us have a tendency to add to the gospel. Here it is. Jesus saves, but it's also very important that you... Jesus saves, but it's also so important that a believer, what? You see, whatever you put in that blank, it is very possible that that thing is your addition to the gospel. It is very possible that you have slipped into the camp of the Judaizers by adding to the gospel. I think the sentence should simply be Jesus saves. But we have such a tendency to add things to it. We want to fill it in by saying Jesus saves, but it's also really important that you make good choices, that you try your hardest, that you don't get drunk, that you don't swear, that you come to church, that you do this, that you do that, you do this, you do that. And every one of those things, while they may be good and right things to try and practice, they are flesh-based additions to the gospel. And any flesh-based addition to the gospel spoils the gospel. Third point is this. Our righteousness on the day of judgment will not come from our human efforts. 
Our righteousness will come solely from God through Christ's work on the cross. We are wrong if we think that we can grasp Christ's sacrifice in one hand and that we need to use our other hand to earn our salvation. That's not how it works. Any effort to impose any requirement beyond faith in Jesus is a perversion of the gospel. That's what Paul says here. Now, I think this is a fair place to stop and and offer a comment, okay? What I am saying is that Jesus saves. What I am not saying is that those who are saved have no responsibility when it comes to right living. I'm not saying that. Having faith in Jesus, it's more than just an intellectual thing, right? Or it's more than just a, a, a heart feeling. Even demons believe in Jesus, Having faith in Jesus means that we are obedient. It means we do what the Bible says. It means that we practice contentment, that we don't lust after our neighbor's wife or his truck. It means that we let our yes be yes and our no be no. And here's the deal, though. We do all of those things as believers because we are saved. We are not doing those things in an effort to save ourselves. Those are marks of a believer not check marks that a believer is trying to do so that they can make their way into heaven. You know, if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, as the text says, I hope that my tone is one of encouragement. I'm encouraging you to watch what you believe and watch what you teach. I'm encouraging you to remember the gospel, gospel. constantly be in touch with the gospel so that you are familiar with the gospel. I'm encouraging you to rely on Jesus, not yourself. I'm encouraging you to draw lines and set boundaries. You've been doing this. I just want you to continue. If you're here this morning, though, and you are not in Christ, my tone is more of a warning. You cannot save yourselves. A day is coming when you will be judged, and if your plan is to hold up your good deeds and say, Lord, this is what I've done, you will be condemned. But there's good news. You can turn to Jesus, accept him, and then be found in him. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He sees Jesus's perfection. And Jesus says, welcome into the kingdom of God. Come have eternal life with me, my Father and his spirit. Let's pray. God, your word is so good. It's thousands of years old, yet we can look at it and say, aha, I see myself in this. Or we can look at it and say, ah, I see the sweetness of this. I see the good news here. God, break our hearts. Help us to see inconsistencies in our lives. Help us to see those moments when we try and add to the gospel. Help us to see that faith in Jesus is what saves us. Help us to see that you bring a life of obedience in and through us. It's in Christ's name. Amen.